Hello humans, welcome to The Frontline, a leadership and business podcast brought to you by Peregrine Corporate Services, an Isle of Man-based fiduciary provider. My name is Martin Hall, and thanks for listening. In this podcast, we chat to an array of business leaders from different sectors to learn more about them, their market, skill sets, and knowledge. We hope you enjoy. Today, I'm joined by Aidan. Aidan, thanks for sparing us a bit of time and coming to talk to us. Not a problem. So, I'd like to hear what you've got to say. So we've got uh, lots to dig into. We obviously are starting a new venture at the moment, but perhaps we can set the scene for listeners. So perhaps a bit of background to yourself. Where did you, were you born on the Isle of Man or, or further afield? And what was your schooling? So I was, I was born in Durham in the northeast. Um, I went on to Nottingham and did some university degrees there. Uh, my primary focus was to do rowing and then I went on, I came, and after I'd finished my rowing career, I came to the Isle of Man because I've got a, um, I've got a sporty background and um, it seemed like a wonderful place to, to be um, and also undertake professional work. And I came in initially as a, in, um, an IT role, but then moved swiftly into accountancy and then trained locally to be a, a qualified accountant. What age were you when you came to the island? Oh, so that was, I, I came over to the island um, in 2000, so in my early 30s. Okay. And then just to go back to, because it sounds quite, well, I'm sure it is interesting, the sporting side of things, the, the rowing. And so the university path, was that very much around the sport aspect of going to going to the uni to get to do the sport of rowing or was it was education in your mind then as well or was it more sports focused looking back well I think at that time it was more sports focused um so I, I was I was I went and did a biology degree um sciences I'm, I'm very interested in the sciences and environment and things like that but actually I think at that time I had a choice between following a career um, oddly, it was going to be dentistry if it was one of those, or I was going to follow my um, sporting uh, career. And just circumstances led to me deciding a pathway that led to the sporting career. I was very passionate about it. Um, and I went to Nottingham because it's, it was the centre of the style of rowing um, that I was involved in, which was lightweight rowing. So you had to be about 70 kilos in order to compete. Right. And was that an individual sport, that, that rowing, or was that in a boats of three or four or however the technical term is yes no absolutely it was uh it was very much a team sport for me although you did get uh, there are disciplines where you can be a, a single uh, rower uh, we trained a lot as single in in single um skulls as they, they're called very good for the um, exercise excellent exercise but we I, I was very much drawn to working and competing with a team um actually my favorite boat was known as the pair because you had one or each and if the other person let go you fell in and it was the most technical boat to row it was it was it was a wondrous experience when you had somebody who you could row well with and what level did you get to in that in that rowing aspect so i i i achieved my um goal which was quite quickly which was to row for great britain um but yeah so and and then from once i once i made the british team I, I had quite a long career rowing for Great Britain. I can't remember exactly how long I was rowing in the team, but easily um, a funded athlete for three or four years, if not more. 
um, and, and, and definitely at the national and world level for, 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 for maybe five or six years. So it's quite a long career there, if not yeah. long, longer than I'm saying there. <laughs> Very impressive. So then that you look at what we talk about coming to the Isle of Man, starting in IT, was that that first job coming to the Isle of Man, was that about just getting in onto the working ladder? Uh, was there an employee here that brought you here or was it you took that step and then found the job? Well, it was a personal relationship that first brought the Isle of Man to my attention and, and I would come and holiday here. And, and I just thought it was such a wonderful place to be. Um, and, it, and, and I think with like many people who, who reside in the UK, they have no idea what, what the Isle of Man is about. Um, and my, my postgraduate qualification, uh, which, I, which I did after I finished my rowing, was in um, IT. And, some, and I, I believe somebody at that time said, well, why don't you apply locally? And before I knew it, I, I, had, I had a number of job, uh, job offers. And it seemed like a no-brainer at the time for me um, to move to the island and, and, and take, on, take on the first role here, which was, in one of, which was actually with AXA, I believe, um, back in the day in, in, in the early 2000s. Right. Okay. And you mentioned how you moved into accounting and, and that, that career progressed there. So perhaps give us a quick kind of guided tour of how that progressed over the years. Well, with the IT background um, and my code and, and I suppose quite limited coding experience, but certainly coding experience, um, it was a natural progression for the next job move, which was to Manx Telecom as a, a management accountant focusing in on, on the telecommunication side. So all of the terms and things like that and the concepts of Manx Telecom just came naturally to me. And, and I think that was why I was able to, to, to get that role with Manx Telecom. Okay. And then I presume, weirdly, in someone's mind, account accounting was then a pathway you felt, you know, that, that excited you and you start to presume do more studying and, and develop that side of your career, yeah, yeah. took you to where yeah. you are now. Yeah, so it had been in the back of my, my mind, uh, an uncle of mine, it was, it was a very successful chartered accountant in London, and he, he had suggested that me looking at finance. Um, I, I did realise that I'd have to, to retrain effectively, uh, and I chose to do that. And I started that in-house in, um, in industry with Manx Telecom, and I finished that off in the finance uh, sector with uh, Close Bank. And then at, at that point, I decided... Mm, I, I want to see what, what it was like in practice. So I moved into practice and pretty much didn't look back for probably over 10 years. Okay. And that, uh, that like that, re, that retraining, as you call it, what age were you when you started that? Yeah, quite late on in life. Yeah, early yeah. 30s. Um, it was quite tough um, to do that, get the brain cells uh, working again. But it was it was it was definitely worthwhile because it's then it, it's it's actually led on to where I am now and and I and I've found my feet of where I'd like to practice and what and the work I'd like to do. So so if you had to on that note, and that's kind of why it was kind of semi-leading question about the when you got into that, that for listeners that are I'll say mature 30 isn't that mature, but later in life and going back to studying, if you had to give them advice, would you would it be don't or do? And uh, what would the advice be around that? I think certainly if you're going to take on a set of professional exams, you have to be sure that you want to do them because they are hard work, um, unless you're one of the lucky few who seem to be able to get through them quite quickly. Um, I worked hard, and as long as you want to do them, then I wouldn't hesitate to do them. I mean, for example, um, when I went on to 
to do my UK insolvency examinations. They're, they're, they're known to be some of the hardest professional exams that you can do. They certainly were represented that to me to be like that. But oddly enough, I flew through them. Where I actually found um, it harder work going through the accountancy qualification. And I think I put that down to where was my passion? My passion was um, the insolvency work. And it has a lot of legal aspects to it. And I think I'm, I was naturally drawn to it. Whereas the financial side, I wasn't so much drawn to it, but I wouldn't wouldn't regret all of the years that I've had in the financial side. And it's given me a wealth of experience and knowledge. And I actually put down my final exam getting through it to to all of the experiences I had as a um, through my accountancy training and the exams and the techniques that I developed and learned in those examinations. So it was a great experience and I wouldn't stop anybody from doing it. So when you look at, or when we, as an observer and not knowing that path for liquidations in that, that area, how does that, you know, as an overriding governing body and then within that, how, do, how does that pathway work in regard to getting qualified and those steps that people would, and you took, I suppose, more importantly, and then if people wanted to go down that path? Well, interestingly, insolvency uh, practitioner roles, um, and, and an insolvency practitioner has to do all sides of business. Um, and, and that's where I think my varied career and background makes me very suitable for the role that I've taken. Um, I've got the IT knowledge, I've got the um, industry knowledge, I've worked in industry, and I've also got the practice knowledge and all of all of all of that. And and now and with the training I did was um, the legal side. So I don't think there's a clear pathway to to working in restructuring. Um, it, it, people come to it from different walks of life. I've, I've heard of directors who were um, on a board of directors who their company went into liquidation and then they found themselves fascinated by what went on and then went on to become a qualified uh, insolvency professionals. So they come from all sorts of backgrounds. One of the things that is generally required is to be a, a professional prior to taking the examinations, but there are other pathways in there if you weren't one. Uh, generally, you're normally sitting in those examinations with lawyers and, and, and chartered accountants and, and alongside you. So it's quite a tough experience. But what I love about those uh, that pathway is it gives you all of the practical knowledge. It's a very practical exam, and it's really interesting. It's probably the most practical exam I've, 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 I've taken of all the many exams that I've taken. Right. And is your, uh, when, you, when you consider yourself and how your brain ticks, is it, is that a practical brain? Yeah, I, I, yes, I definitely think that um, over the years, my, my brain and approach has definitely changed um, from a very technical brain when I was uh, in practice being an auditor, very, a very methodic um, and an and accurate style of work to, to being a much more pragmatic, um, fast moving um, and agile brain. Um, but still with, of course, that attention to detail, which which puts me in great stead for when for when I'm doing investigation work and things like that. So, so before maybe before we dig in, that dig in a little bit into kind of liquidation aspects of things. I know again previously and prior to the the what's going on in your career now, which we'll come on to, is you worked in a a big firm and a small firm, if that's the right term. How I mean, if you have to give differences again, thinking about your own adaptability. How, you know, what, what 
the big differences do you see? And maybe, and maybe that's outside of the, well, maybe in a big corporate, things take longer to get done because there's a bigger chain of command. I, I don't know. What, what, what would you kind of see as the main differences and, and challenges for people? Because I'd imagine certainly some people who certainly want to then jump between or have always worked in small companies, that jump into a big company might be a complete culture shift for them and vice versa, uh, where they've been in a regimented, typically a regimented bigger system and that they move to a small agile firm. Well, that's that's really interesting. Um, I think you summed it up perfectly with like a large corporate versus a small corporate. And um, and I think anybody who's who's worked in the larger firms will would accept that there's a general level of overhead that you have to get done because they take on these very large uh, audit uh, appointments in, in, in the US under the SEC rules. And, and, and it's a necessity of, of, of the work that they do that they have to have quite a large corporate mechanism above them. Um, what's really interesting for me is, is that because I haven't actually, I didn't undertake audit work in, in the, the two large, the two big four companies that I've worked for, I work very much in the advisory side. And so I find it myself comparing what I do now and what I did for them, very little difference to, to be honest. We invariably in advisory work, you have to create the wheel and ride it at the same time. And it very much is dependent on the people. And I think for customers or stakeholders, it's very much, I would always advise people to do their due diligence on the team that they're going to use for undertaking their advisory work. It is very much dependent on the person at that firm, regardless of whether it's a large or small firm, as to the quality of work that you're going to receive. Um, it requires very little investigation to find to get you and your hard-earned money where to put it. And, and, and I would always recommend just taking a look. Yeah. Um, you can quite quickly find out whether or not somebody knows what they're talking about, just having a conversation with them. Yeah, yeah. So now I know you've just, just moved and you've new opportunity that you've started on. So do you want to talk about where that is and what you're hoping to do there? So, yes, so um, I have uh, joined Brown Crane and Co with the, with the main sole purpose of leading the advisory company, uh, Brown Crane Advisory Limited. And we hope to focus primarily in restructuring work, which will be solvent winding ups, insolvent winding ups, contentious work, receiverships, you name it, um, and simply re corporate simplification, for example, and, and, and general advice around that, pre-liquidation advice, Anything restructuring, we've pretty much got it covered, I do believe. Um, alongside the uh, advisory work that there, I'm very keen on um, pushing our general advisory work, uh, which you would maybe due diligence, valuation, and, and assignments like that, perhaps for the uh, medium-sized clients, you know, small to medium-sized clients who want um, some due diligence and valuation work on their side, but perhaps don't want to pay such don't want to pay larger fields fees which would be expected with the, like the larger corporates um, and I think we'll be very very adept in that field we're also looking for an agile restructuring approach we're not looking to just liquidate the assets that are on the shelf we're looking to investigate and look we're certainly in the contentious work we wouldn't be put off by for example then the assets no longer being in the company uh we we, we have the special speciality sorry the specialisms and expertise to investigate and look for other ways and mechanisms to recover assets and that's something i'm really passionate about and and i find i find very exciting but then at the same time 
working on uh, corporate simplifications, uh, simplifying structures that don't need so many legal entities, or just providing general advice in, um, say, a contentious situation where we just hope all parties look for a sensible compromise and, and, and put ourselves in the shoes of every stakeholder so that a solution can be found. That's another area that I'm particularly interested in doing because it, it, it is fascinating seeing everybody's situations and trying to work out and resolve those issues. It could be government-led problems or well, government-led issues that the government would like help and, 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 and support on, or it could be um, individual um, companies and individuals who find themselves actually uh, looking at looking at regulatory matters and that they need support. There are so many options available and each case is, is, is fact specific. So it's very hard to say exactly what I'll do, but, or will do, but it's, um, mm -hmm. you know, Lindsay and I, sorry, Lindsay, Lindsay Smith, are my uh, co-director will, and, and, and appointment taker will, will be looking into these areas. Yeah. So one of the things we touched on before we came on air and you can't, I guess, touched on there and my understanding is one of the things when certainly when you're the appointed liquid when you're looking at liquidations is that it's really about trying to close it or finish liquidation as efficiently as possible so those stakeholders get back as much as humanly possible i guess to save that to ensure that process is not drawn out any further than it needs to be and that that was it that was an area i certainly chatting off air felt you were very passionate about that 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 was an important driver in decision making process through it through I guess liquidations, restructurings, and that type of things. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the, the, the really enjoyable part of liquidation is, is you come in as an independent, um, and and you have to act as an independent, and you act on behalf of the legal entity, the separate person personality, and and you and it's it's a relatively um, in in simple terms, it does actually feel quite simple. You go out to the stakeholders of the company, you assess whether there are any claims and you make reasonable notifications and um, advertisements for, for parties to come forward. And sometimes parties do, sometimes they don't. But the important thing is to make sure that this, the uh, formalities are observed and that everybody who has a, uh, a potential interest, whether it's a claim or whether it's uh, a member's shareholding, that they've come forward and had an opportunity to receive what might be due to them. And, and it doesn't really get much more complicated than that. Of course, the law is far more complex and the actual practical implementation of it can get to cause real mountains for, to, to get through. But it really is important, I think, for the legal entity and to protect every type of stakeholder to, to, to potentially hand over their company once they're finished with it to an independent liquidator so that we can take an independent and objective view to ensure that 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 things are cleared cleared and closed so much so on the isle of man and, and in other jurisdictions but in the isle of man in particular once a company's gone through a formal liquidation process it can't be restored after two years i mean that th that has its benefits um yeah. and you know 12 if you if you don't put it through a liquidation process 12 years is a long time to wait yeah. And, and what do you do with the records? And there's lots of questions that could be asked. And for example, in the Isle of Man, it's quite clear in the legislation that there are specific periods of time and, and shorter periods of time that you might think are actually shorter than you thought you actually had to hold the records. But it's also the best thing for, for the stakeholders, the members and the directors is that they don't have to ask those questions. It's mine and Lindsay's responsibilities to make those judgments. So there is a lot of benefit to getting independent appointment takers uh, to look into into a company's fares if you want to close it down. 
I think having worked myself worked in the fiduciary space for, for all my life, really. The the one thing that sort of is a common theme is when, when companies do come to an end, the sort of basic dissolution or even walking away and just letting it be struck off is often the 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 was the often the efficient way of doing it, I guess, in the inefficient in the sense of cost, inevitably. Uh, but I in a world where risk management and risk continue to go up. Uh, inevitably, and we, we with our PI people continue to risk manage. Uh, I assume that that's that's it. That's certainly in the CSP CSP space where more and more where well, obviously there are a lot of entities are managed. That 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 consideration around actually appointing a formal liquidator to to really take that responsibility away from the directors to ensure uh, full cover. That's that's the kind of thing that perhaps ten years ago a CSP director might not be thinking about, but should be high on their radar now. I think so. And and, and given the, and I've, I've got a reasonable amount of experience with the CSP industry and given the, 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 given the nature of the CSP industry and that teams move on, directors move on, it's not unusual for directors to, you know, for a company to have a, a quite a plethora of different directors. The problem about that is, is that you have a lot of corporate memory loss. And though I'm, I'm, I'm certain, that a uh, the, the CSP director might be able to run a dissolution just as well as we could effectively run a liquidation. It does take time and it does take um, experience. And unless you're doing it regularly, it's very easy to ask the obvious question, to forget to ask the obvious question. And, and, and you can't help yourself be somewhat connected to an entity. Um, I wouldn't say... You know, it's, it's just simpler to let somebody else take the risk of of, of liquidating um, yeah. the entity. And 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 I think the CSP industry. I, I do get your point about that. It was quite normal for strike off um, to arise. And in actual fact, um, you know, it really isn't. I don't think it's ever the intention that strike off is acceptable by any any light any regulator or anything like that. It's not the ideal solution. It, it, it basically means that it's open uh, to be restored in, in, in 12 months. And then you've got Bonifacantia issues. Should assets arise, who's, whose assets are those? Um, and, and again, it can cause a headache. And, and, and the one thing about liquidation is certainty. It might mean that you lose, um, it might mean that you lose certain assets. For example, if you were to uh, wind up and, and close close the liquidation and th and three years later an asset comes to light because you can't restore the company but there are always it's very rare that that occurs and there are always ways around that and um yeah. well i suspect that there are ways around that i should say that i'll get a lawyer to um work it through but it's all about working stakeholder management and arguably working it through with treasury um because when things go bonifacantia it, it's a lovely concept that they are property of the crown and and without uh and written confirmation, I would say, you probably need, you, 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 it is, it, it, they are not your assets. And I do see it time and again, where assets come to light and um, connected parties, the assets don't actually flow back to the company. And that, that is really concerning because that can cause long tail issues. Yeah. Um, and so if I might just jump back, because I, I think I just something slipped, which I didn't think was, I didn't mean to say in such quite stark terms. The point is, is that once a, a company is liquidated, it can't be restored 
for the register after two years. So if an asset did come back in, in, in three years, the beauty of it is, is that if you were a director of it, well, the responsibility is, first of all, it's the liquidators. So that's great. And secondly, the liquidator, like I said previously, there's probably a way to be to you could get that liquidator because they're vested in that situation to actually employ their mind to see look for a solution yeah. with likely treasury. So so this is the you get more heads to the problem. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I appreciate when you look at, and everyone loves a good story, uh, appreciating you've worked in businesses. And have you got, uh, and again, without obviously, without client client uh, uh, protection, should we say, and, and, and ID protection, have you got any kind of horror stories or situations where you've seen that you can, that you're able to touch on uh, that without, without going into, I guess, too much detail, but situations where, look, uh, beware, these are the types of things that do crop up. Yeah, well, it comes back to the Bonavacantia matter that I've, I've I've touched on, where I, you know, you see funds not going back to the company and the company being restored. That 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 gives me a little shiver because it's potentially fraudulent, unless you've actually dealt with it appropriately and lawfully. Um, other things are long, long tail, unresolved tax inquiries, issues and inquiries, and, and, and they do come left of field. Um, you might think that you've wound up the company and, and, and it's, or, or wound up or dissolved, whichever it is. And then all of a sudden you have to reopen the company records because you've got a tax inquiry. The, these things are really quite complicated to mitigate. And, and, and this is the beauty of, of again, restructuring it. it, it it's, it's, finality either and again the responsibility then lies with the liquidator not you not not the directors because um or i say you i say like people who yeah. are listening to this the directors it it's it really is the liquidator's responsibility you can hand off and go ha not my problem you no. know it's for the liquidator to look at that and you know long tail tax um inquiries uh which are not uncommon on the isle of man from all around the world and and and, and the ever increasing of um the ever increasing work between tax authorities is, is only going to increase those in investigations. So it, it's not it, the, the beauty of, of liquidation is, is that the records are, are secured. Yeah. If, and, and it comes back to my point about a liquidator being effectively just the independent objective middle person to um, deal with the queries. And so, for example, if records are lost after um, so, so for example, liquidations, the records can, could be destroyed five years after the date of dissolution, I believe, or, and, and, and it's all with sanction of the court for an earlier time. And if, if, if those records are, have been destroyed, then, then these, these are good things because it sets a precedent. So you say, this is what it is, yeah. you know, and, and people who, who want information. So, and all I'm coming from, from that point of view is it's the cost of of pulling out records and yeah. providing those records and and and, and it, it it might you know so like we're coming back to your point a strike off was the efficient way is it it's a good yeah. question would strike off be the most efficient thing for your company yeah let, let, let alone the, the the lying risk and again as a as a director of entities that being able to all along pass that responsibility in in those situations go look here it is this is what's left you crack on and I can walk away and sleep at night. Uh, it seems uh, it seems kind of the the right solution to go down. So uh, maybe back to personal side of things. Outside of work nowadays, what what keeps you entertained? 
sports well, guys uh, or family, etc. Yes, my well, my family, uh, my family, my wife and daughter. Um, we have a lovely life life on the island. Um, so I do really appreciate being based from coming from the UK. I do appreciate the additional time we have on the island, and and, and that's some twenty years ago. I still realise that we've got it quite special here, and and as a result of that, and and with the sea so close by, I've I've chosen that my my favourite uh, pastime is is windsurfing when the wind is in. Um, <laughs> yeah, so always windy. And, and it's always windy. Yeah, we have yeah. a very good wind stats on the island. Uh, I would like more <laughs> waves. But uh, we don't we don't get as many ways as I would like. But I'm I'm not going to be picky, and 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 my and and and, and on a, on a personal side and say on an environmental side, um, about two years ago I decided not to not to drive to work anymore, and now I cycle to work. Um, I'm luckily quite close by, and I've managed two winters. Um, right. And I promised myself if I uh, got through one winter, I would get rid of my car parking space, and I did. Right. And and I haven't looked back. But um, it, it it does take a toll on the uh, the, the the bikes. I've I've managed to go through two bikes in in two years. Um, right. And I'm not doing huge miles here. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm only doing a few miles. That's the air uh, rotting it, isn't it? It's possibly yes. But it's a wonderful, it's wonderful. Um, I, I really, I, it gives me, um, you know, 15, 20 minutes in and, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes back and, it, and it's wonderful exercise. Um, and and it, it's, it's, it's very efficient exercise as well because you could quite easily spend that kind of time in your car. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, very good. You made me feel bad now for not riding to work. Well, <laughs> I suspect you've got a longer cycle than I have. By well, somewhere. yeah, potentially, but still, probably no excuse. But no, that's, that's uh, yeah, that's good, right? So, uh, and just just a maybe final point in regard to the island, and obviously you've you've fallen in love with it since you've been here. Do you talk to your family about coming out, or your family? I assume you've still got family in the UK and trying to get them over, and then maybe do some babysitting for you as well. Oh yes, we definitely do. We have we have the the in-laws or outlaws, as I like. To them uh come in there stay for a for two weeks at a time it is quite we we, we don't have the biggest of, of houses and uh you know we could do with we could do with a little bit more space it's, it's quite it's quite full on uh because nobody can uh, get to their own uh space but but it's wonderful wonderful when they when when our relatives do come over as yet nobody's uh um suggested coming to live on the island we would love we'd love some of our family to come and do that but they're very um ensconced in the in the uk um I, and i think that it's unlikely that they'll come and join us but you know that's their choice and uh, yeah. yeah having a water between you and the in-laws is not a bad thing <laughs> yes <laughs> uh, so thanks for joining me today if, if anybody wants to reach out, out to reach out to aiden in the footer note of our podcast is uh, Aiden's email and the Brown Crane website. So feel free if you've got questions. I'm sure if you just want general advice, Aiden would be more than happy to chat to you. So yeah, please, please do reach out to him. Thanks for joining us today. I appreciate your time, Aiden. No problem. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening, everyone.